Welcome to our first day one Australian Open 2016 podcast thing for no challenges remaining. Kickstarter. I'm kickstarted yeah. podcasting. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How Hello, are you? Hello, Ben. I'm good. It's been quite a day. It has been quite a day. It's been an <laughs> and it's exhaust- not even over. It's been an exhausting day. We're coming to you from day one of the Australian Open, where a whole lot has happened. A day that got hijacked early by a story that came out on BBC BuzzFeed about match fixing in tennis and the Tennis Integrity Unit and what they do and don't do or appear to not be doing about this issue. Uh, so we'll get some of that. But o- overall, results-wise, we're halfway through the day. I think it's been a busy, newsier day for the women and the men. Uh, big, big takeaway so far as we at near the end of the day session. <laughs> big takeaway so far as you can't read into and you should read into previous results before the Australian Open. You get Svetlana Kuznetsova being an absolute buzzsaw. She's been so good. Just mercilessly taking care of Daniela Hantukova, obviously just won Sydney. Um, but then you also have, you know, Sloane Stevens who won Auckland going out uh, rather me- not meekly, but giving up a bit of a lead and. and, and uh, Meek scoreline against, yeah. against that opponent, and against lost, Wang Chang. Lost, uh, I don't know. Three and three? That should yeah, not be. That's, that's, that's not good. And then uh, we are recording this just as Yulia Putinseva knocks out Caroline Wozniacki, the number 16 seed. Probably the upset of the day, although I think the, the Sloan upset's pretty big as well. Um, but just seed-wise, that's pretty massive. Yeah. Pavlyuchenkova, who seemed to be playing okay, you know, in uh, in Brisbane and Sydney. She's out as well. So, yeah, a lot of seeds uh, hit the deck. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, let's talk briefly, let's hear from Sloan briefly, uh, who spoke after her Lost to Wang Chang. It was in mixed spirits, I think. Still, still somewhat Auckland high, but obviously not a good day at the office for her. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so good to see you again. Good to see you too, Happy Slot. New Year. Happy New Year to you too. I wish it was on better terms, but I'm glad to see you all again. Well, it's mutual. Yeah. How, how, so I guess, what do you think happened out there to make it not better terms? Because you obviously look, everything looks so good in Auckland. Yeah, everything was looking good, feeling good, but. I mean, sometimes you have those days, and today was definitely one of those bad days. I mean, all credit to her, she played good, she played really solid. So, um, I mean, it's just one of those days, it just wasn't, nothing was going my way. It wasn't really a lot of shots that I'd like to make, that I normally make, weren't going in. A lot of opportunities slipped away, and that's kind of, in the tennis match, it's really important to capitalize on opportunities to make a lot of shots. So, In the, pre, in the pre-Australian Open coverage, um, there was great appreciation for the win in Auckland. But a, a, a general criticism, if I could broach the subject, is, oh, I wish she had more intensity, more fire in the belly. Do you think there's any justification to that criticism, or do you dismiss that? Uh, what are your thoughts? I, mean, I know it's a tough question after a tough loss. But. No, it's fine. I think definitely after Auckland, everyone was like, oh, we can support Sloan again because she's playing good and she's looking good and we, we need to get back on that bandwagon because we kind of abandoned her type of situation. And then when you lose and they go back to, oh, she doesn't work hard, she's not committed, she doesn't love the game. Like, I, For me, I'm never going to win because it's always going to be like, she's great and then she's not committed. She, oh, she looks great this week. Oh, you know, she lost to somebody that wasn't seated. Like, you know, so it's kind of a back and forth type of situation. And if you listen to all of the negative, like, she looks fat today or she looks too skinny now. Like, there's so many things that people can say. And most of them are not true because the only thing you know about me is what you see 
on the court, like when I'm playing. And, you know, I'm human, so I have bad days. And I think for me, just kind of learning to accept the criticism, good or bad, has been, you know, a struggle, but something I've learned to do. And, I mean, that's I play a sport, and that's what people do. That's what you guys write about. So... So you have to listen to your inner voice, what you're saying. Yeah, I know if I'm committed. I know if I'm working hard. Like, I know if I've busted my butt in my off season. Like, I know all those things. And that, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. A couple of top seeds survived our odd labor. Some tough, what looked like tough matches for sure in the draw. First off, let's hear from the one who opened play on the odd labor. Patrick, a bit of a, uh, according, we wandered in late to her press, but we, we it was <laughs> we, well we, worth we it. We ambled in. We... Because Ben and I are Ben and I, we assumed that Petra Kvitova was going to be in the main interview room. Right. So when she was announced, you, myself, and Tumaini... You, I started following you. Okay, everybody yeah. followed me, and I just went and sat down, and thank goodness for Julie Rabe, one of the transcriptionists, who she had a minor freak out because she was like, what the heck are you guys doing here? No one's coming in here. And then we said Kvitova, and she said, no, 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 that's room two. So yeah, we were a little late, so we missed a little but bit. But we got some good stuff from we her. Did. Obviously, one of the lowlier moments of the tournament <laughs> was when the qualifiers got placed in the women's draw, and Luxka Kumkum, who famously beat Petra Kvitova out of nowhere in the first round of the 2014 Australian Open. Petra was going to play qualifier, and then the 12 qualifiers got placed, and voila, Kumkum was back against Kvitova. And so hear how Petra reacted to all of that. Did you know that she was, you know, going through qualifying before you she got put in your draw? Did you know that it was a a possibility, and if so, what was your reaction when you saw that you were playing Kumkum? Uh, I knew that she's playing color because I've been here for a week before, so I a little bit knew who is playing the color, but uh, um, I really didn't like follow her. <laughs> but I'm, uh, my coach texted me that I'm playing her, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a surprise for me, and uh, not a very nice surprise. <laughs> so what, did, what, did, what, what was that conversation like with you and your coach? Did he say like, uh, or was like, or were you laughing about it? What was the what was the tone of the yeah. Kumkum news? We were texting, so it's difficult to say the tone. <laughs> um, was, was there an emoji? <laughs> no emoji. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, he said I'm playing Kumkum, and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have a tone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another big story on labor was that Serena Williams survived her first match since uh, September at the U.S. Open, her first competitive match. She was very quick to say, which I appreciate that she doesn't. She realizes that IPTL and Hotman Cup don't matter, so she was very clear about that. And uh, she got through a good one against Camille Georgie, who played well, and that was a pretty high, high octane I thought match. It was great. Really I mean, good. I think that for a first rounder, that was as good as I've seen Serena come out at a major in a first round match. In just terms of, you know, she stayed pretty calm. You know, she didn't she didn't freak out. You know, I thought Georgie played well. And obviously, as we've discussed before in the draw preview, that Georgie is a player that does not let you play. So when she was zinging, you know, those those forehand returns past Serena, she just, you know, got along with it and, and stuck with it. So I thought I was very impressed. I think that, you know, there might be a few uh, people who made predictions who might be revising their Azarenka picks to maybe try and squeeze Serena back in um, as their favorite pick because I thought she looked sharp. And, uh, it was that good a day for her? Yeah. To, no, to, me, I, to me, I really thought that it was. Um, I just... It, there, I just was looking for a lot of weaknesses. I mean, it wasn't like the perfect match from her, but um, but that was that was kind of third round, fourth round Serena. And her I draw thought. opened up a little bit today. It did. In, in, on, at least, at yes least on, no. on paper, because she avoided Ostapenko, who was going to be the tougher sure. second round match, and she gets Sue Shea. But now she could be in line to play Kashakina. Who we thought third, was the tougher one than Schmidlova, who was the seed. And Wozniacki was also fourth uh, fourth yeah, round opponent. Yeah, that, that so, opens up things. So that a opened up things there. a little bit. Looking forward, let's actually hear before we leave Serena from her coach Patrick Mortoglu 
I spoke to on the concourse of Rod Laver, so it might be pretty noisy, uh, about his thoughts on what it's like to play and prepare for Camilla Georgie, who is a whole different meatball of a of a pasta dish than most. <laughs> it's a terrible analogy, sorry. Loved it, loved it. Like this against everyone. Yeah. When she plays against uh, Serena or probably a few others, she feels like she has to go for the winner on every single shot she hits. So there is no rhythm, there is no rallies, and it's... It's not easy for a first match to get rhythm, you know. Yeah. So I think she did. She did well, considering that uh, again, Camila goes for the winner. On every, she sees every ball as an opportunity to get a winner, whatever ball it is. So how do you prepare for that in practice? I mean, how do you, how do you how do you prepare for no rallies, two first serves, you know, no second serve, all that stuff? How do you prepare for that? You cannot prepare for a, for a match that is not a tennis match. Yeah. So you have to pre you have to prepare for speed because you, the ball is gonna go and come very fast. So this you can get used to. But after it's about you keeping the focus because you know that she's gonna blow out a few times. So yeah. if you are focused, you're gonna break. Yeah. Wait, wait, and uh, and you and sorry just just to finish and you have to you have to keep being aggressive because it's a big temptation to just put the ball in, knowing that she's gonna hit a few fans. But uh, that's not the right attitude if, because it makes you. I mean, things don't depend on you, which is never something very comfortable, and it, it make me. It make. It can make you make mistakes. Yeah. To be like this, so it's, you have to keep your aggressivity, even though she she is uh, playing the way she is with a lot of mistakes also. Yeah. Well, normally, Serena is the one who decides. No. The, uh, against Camilla, also Camilla has a, has a chance to decide a little bit or not. I mean. Terms of, uh, yes and no, because I think if they play a hundred times, she would lose a hundred, maybe 99 times. So yeah. I cannot say that she decides. She decides, uh, no, she doesn't decide. If you give her the good ball, I mean the right one, she's going to miss more than put the ball in. Sure. It's about putting her in a position to hit, because she has the same ball on every shot. Yeah. So of course, if you give her the shot to make it in, to put it, in, to hit it in, yeah, it's a winner. But if you give her a ball that the shot she will go for is yeah. not the right one, then she will miss more than. Yes. Percentage-wise, she will. I mean, she has, she's yeah. gonna lose. So the knee is good. The knee is okay. Everything is. Yeah. I think everybody yeah. saw that she was okay. She lost before. weight a little bit, or seemed to uh, be. Compared to a few months ago, yeah, because she didn't do sports for a while because the goal was to, yeah, to let the body recover. So she, of yeah. course, put weight on. But once she started practice. I think started to the way it started to go. I think now she's she's fit. Okay. I mean, I'm happy to, with her fitness and her tennis. And what about the rest of the tournament? She needs competition. Uh, match after match, she's going to be better and better. Uh, one last result on the men's side that came in and upset uh, Noah Rubin, who's ranked something like 328. Uh, wild card. That's low. That's real low. One of the lowest ranked turn players in the tournament. I think second lowest behind only Omar Jessica, I want to say, off the top of my head. Uh, anyway, he <laughs> beat. Benoit Pair, uh, 17 seed, and Benoit Pair was not happy about it and not super impressed with Noah Rubin or just wanted to be really bitchy in defeat. Benoit, were you, were you surprised by him? I don't know how much you knew about him before this match. Were you surprised by how he played or anything? Yeah, I played bad. I played against uh, not a good player, but uh, I was very bad today, so that's it. I lost. What can I say? Did you know anything about him before this no, match? No, nothing, and uh, for sure I will. Yeah, it was a bad match, so no, I didn't know him, and uh, after this match I said yes, he's not a very good player. Uh, I was uh, worse than him, and that's it. Uh, so let's get, according to the big story of the day, which was the match-fixing report that came out from BBC and BuzzFeed. What were your first thoughts when you when you saw 
the story come out, and I guess as it def- continued to sort of control the early part of the day, at least, and probably still. Yeah, no, it definitely hijacked the morning. Um, I was, uh, had my whole day planned out. It was pretty good, and then for a good four hours this morning, uh, probably didn't watch a lick of tennis, and it was just no. kind of running around. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a third. I mean, from if you take what BuzzFeed slash BBC say, I mean, they they've got these leaked documents, and that's quite interesting. There seems to be more in those documents than they are willing to reveal at the moment, exactly. namely names. Exactly, um, and I think that. You know, one thing that struck me during the press conference that was held today with the Tennis Integrity Unit and uh, Chris Kermode as well was that um, we need transparency. I mean, that's the only thing that these th- way that these things move forward, right? Whether you're talking about doping or you're talking about match fixing or, you know, even you know, in, in, in very small and very different way, like, for example, like I'm doing these like WTA 101 series on WTA Insider, just yeah. explain rules, yeah. you know, basic rules that, that help the sport move forward because we're not trying to hide the ball. Here's what the rule is. Here's, here's what why. the bonus pool is. Right, here's, here's what, what the other... bonus pool is. Here's maybe why your player is playing a tournament. And I feel like that's kind of what we've been big on at NCR. Yeah, Our whole about... ethos has been pretty much pulling back the curtain and being like, hey, guys, here's how the sausage is made. Weird, huh? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and so that's why, you know, it's like as, as much as it was a, a strong article insofar as making a case maybe to the broader public, not so much to the tennis yeah. uh, tennis folk, tennis community. I mean, I don't think that it really revealed much other than the, the Grand Slam active, it sounds like. I don't know if it's active, but a Grand Slam winner who was implicated in these reports as being reported multiple times for potential, like for weird betting swings, yeah. which is different than saying somebody actually fixed a right. match. And the question, and the question is just, this, does this move the ball forward at all? And that's in, what I mean. I think transparency of, at this point yeah. is the only thing that moves the ball forward. I would agree with that. So to get to some non-transparency, let's go hear from the press conference that was held today by uh, Chris Kermode of the ATP, Nigel Williamson of the Tennis Integrity Unit. Uh, those are the only two who spoke during it, but there were other people on the day. Steve Simon of the WTA was there, and Craig Tiley was somewhere around the edges. Not and on the dais. Not on the dais, but just there, sort of a show of solidarity. It was a big sort of emergency summit, it felt like, and they stayed on for not very long, didn't take very many questions, ended it abruptly for no clear reason. Like, oh, we have so much stuff to do. Like, no, you really don't. Uh, we got to go investigate match-fixing allegations. I, I guess don't know. So. I mean, it was, yeah. that, that part was unimpressive, but... And some of their matches were evasive, and you'll hear from them here. Hi. First of all, thank you uh, very much, everyone, for coming here at such short notice. But we thought it was uh, important to address this issue uh, head-on straight away. So I appreciate the tournament. Um, you know, and the Australian Open is a big tournament about to start, and you're uh, busy with uh, match action, but did want to uh, address this. And all of us collectively in tennis felt it was important uh, to do this today. Um, The Tennis Integrity Unit uh, and the tennis authorities uh, absolutely reject any suggestion um, that evidence of match-fixing has been suppressed for any reason uh, or isn't being thoroughly investigated. Um, And while the BBC and BuzzFeed reports mainly refer to events from about 10 years ago, we will investigate any new information, and we always do. In its investigations, the Tennis Integrity Unit has to find evidence as opposed to information, suspicion or hearsay. And this is the key here, that it requires evidence. And a year-long investigation into the SOPOP match in 2007 found insufficient evidence. And as the BuzzFeed report states itself, 
the investigators had hit a brick wall and it just wasn't possible to determine who the guilty party was in relation to this match. Chris, uh, the report does kind of cast some doubt about whether there are enough resources being put into TIU. How do you feel about that factor and what, what more could be done? I think, um, you know, the, the, the point to make is that uh, it was formed in 2008 um, and it has grown. Um, we have, you know, tennis has invested over $14 million uh, to address this issue of, uh, of uh, corruption. Um, and it's constantly being reviewed. I mean, I think that's the big message for today. This is, this is not something that we're uh, taking for granted. And, um, you know, we get together uh, as tennis um, with the T Tennis Integrity Board and we talk about um, uh, investment. There has never, ever been uh, a, a request from Nigel, who, who is in charge of the Tennis Integrity Unit, for funds that we haven't supplied. So... Um, yeah, but we will continue to review where we should go from here. Uh, Chris, as, as you say, most of the um, allegations relate to things that happened in the mid-2000s, but there's also a suggestion that there's a kind of core group of players who attracts the hearsay suspicion that you're talking about, and then the next implication is that, that more could be done, uh, maybe with these powers that Nigel has mentioned, to try to, to pin down those allegations against that, this group of players. Can you address that? Yeah, I mean, I think, we, we, you know, we, we've heard this quite a bit, that there are, you know, certain allegations and information about um, various players, and they can be sometimes seem to be consistent, uh, as a consistent group. But, you know, going back to the first thing I said, it, it's about obtaining evidence, uh, and you can have, you know, lots of information, lots of anecdotal reports, um, but it's about getting evidence that we can use. And so anything that is reported to the Tennis Integrity Unit is acted upon um, and is investigated. And that's, again, a very important sort of message to get across. This doesn't just sort of filter out somewhere. It is acted upon. Is that that's correct? I'll confirm yeah. that uh, very strongly. Everything that comes into the unit is actioned, it's assessed. Uh, but as I say, uh, corruption is very difficult to... Uh, detect and to obtain the evidence to uh, prosecute these uh, people who unfortunately go down that path. I have a question for, I guess, Chris, do you think there's any issues with tennis possibly being too cosy or too, uh, with, with the gambling side of things? I mean, you have a tournament on the ATP called the Bet at Home Open, and you have other you know, gambling sponsors on backdrops of tournaments, other things, and I know players aren't allowed to get individual sponsorships from these, but the tour is. I'm just wondering, do you see this sort of intertwining that you have with these companies making money off of that side of the industry at all problematic for when you do have such shadows from this other yeah, very a, real a, part of the yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very good point I mean my um, uh, I don't think it's an issue because and I think it can actually help at times because um, you know Nigel and the Tennis Integrity Unit are working with betting companies all the time to spot corruption but the, the distinction to make is that betting itself is not an illegal uh, you know, pastime uh, and many people do bet on sport. What we're talking about is corruption and sometimes we can talk about betting and corruption and the same thing and they are different. Um, so I think the more we work with betting companies, because by the way it's in their interest that there isn't corruption, right? So they are as strong as we are that we're getting rid of corruption uh, within the game.
the last couple of questions, I'm afraid, are very pushed for time today, as you can imagine. Carol over here, and then Valdo to finish. Carol. Please, sorry, just to be clear, can you confirm or not that as of today, there are players on tour and maybe on this tournament that are monitored by the TIU for possible match-fixing offences? No, I mean, I can you repeat the question? Confirm or not that as of today there are players on the tour and maybe in this tournament that are being monitored by your unit for possible baiting match fixing offences? No, it'd be unprofessional for me to make comment as to whether uh, any players are under investigation at the present time. Last question from Abado and then we'll wrap yeah, up. I'd like uh, to follow up a little bit, Ben. If you don't see any contradiction, okay, baiting companies are supporting, they want to, they're against match fixing and everything else. But then, we are journalists, we, sometimes we are told to not even make uh, uh, predictions or suggest that maybe a player is not uh, in great shape so he could lose to somebody else. And they tell us to sign uh, things like that uh, before we get the credentials. And so, and I want to know if you don't see any contradiction on that, because you have sponsors who are pushing to bet, and they are writing everywhere. But the the goes back, I, I think I did answer it with Ben, which which is that there is a, this dis, distinction between you know betting is is. Is a, is a legal pastime. A prediction for a too. This is probably, that sounds like it's maybe an offline conversation about the rules for journalists, perhaps. I yeah, think Chris has addressed the issue yeah. of well, it being. I, think, I see a contradiction on that. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. And obviously all the players were, going to, a lot of the top players are going to be asked about this. Uh, all the ATP guys were getting briefed by the ATP tour I did reps. see, I don't know if you saw this, Andy Murray retweeted the article. He did, he did. He retweeted the BuzzFeed article, yeah. which I thought was notable. I saw Andy, he said he was going to talk about it after his match. Yeah. I've tried to get him for this already, but alas. Um, but yeah, Andy, uh, but Novak came in to press. He's top half his point today. So Novak came in and fielded some questions and had his own experience that happened uh, when he was a uh, upcoming player. Uh, got a vicariously to about fixing matches uh, so you can hear from Novak None here. of these players have been identified do you feel uh, bad that you know it casts a shadow over everybody? I don't think so honestly I've, I've, uh, I've heard about the story and I read that uh, <clears throat> there were a couple of players mentioned who are not active anymore and uh, you know talking about the matches that have happened you know, almost almost 10 years ago so of course uh there is there is no room for any match fixing or corruption in our sport. We're trying to keep it as clean as possible, and we have uh, I think um, as sport evolved and and upgraded our programs and authorities to you know to deal with this uh, <clears throat> particular cases. Um, and I don't think that there the, the shadow is cast over our sport. In contrary, you know people are um, talking about names, guessing, you know. You know who these players are, guessing guessing those names, but uh, there's no real proof or evidence yet of, of any active players, uh, for that matter. And as long as it's like that, it's 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 just a speculation. Um, so I, I I think we have to keep it that way. You were in 2007, I think. You were quoted as saying you'd been offered a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to throw a first round match in. St. Petersburg, I believe he didn't actually even play in the tournament. Can you just clarify that and, and tell us what happened? I was not approached directly. Uh, I was approached through, well, I mean me personally, through through uh, 
people that were working with me at that time um, that were in my team um, and, and of course we, <laughs> we we threw it away right away I mean it didn't even get to me um, the guy that was that was uh, trying to uh, to talk to me he didn't he didn't even get to me directly so there was nothing out of it you know and uh, unfortunately um, there were some uh, those times those days uh, some rumors, some talks, some people that were going around, uh, but they were dealt with. And uh, in the last, you know, six, seven years, I, I haven't heard anything, anything similar. So, I personally was never approached directly. So, I have nothing more to say about that. Can I ask though, Novak, as a young player on your, on your way up through the ranks, how that made you feel, even being indirectly associated with it? <laughs> you know, it made me feel terrible because I, I you know, I don't want to be anyhow um, linked to this kind of, you know, somebody may call it an opportunity, I call it a, for me, that's that's an act of unsportsmanship, a, a crime in sport, honestly. I don't, I don't support it. I think it's, uh, there's no room for it in any sport, especially in tennis. Um... But, you know, I always have been thought and have been surrounded with people that had nurtured and, you know, respected the sports values. And, and you know, that's that's the way I've grown up. I've grown up and fortunately for me, I, I, I didn't need to, you know, get directly involved in these particular situations. Novak, you're someone who takes your role as an ambassador for the sport very seriously. You really care about the message you put out there. Does it make you uncomfortable at all that... This Grand Slam has a betting company as one of its big sponsors. There's so many ads, even when you go on Twitter, the mm. sponsored ads are from that. Well, this is this is a subject for discussion, I think, uh, today and in, in the future. And uh, it's a fine line, honestly. It's, it's still on a borderline, I would say. Um, whether you want to... You know, having have betting companies involved um, the big tournaments in our sports um, or not, it's it's you know it's it's hard to say what's right and what's wrong. Um, I think uh, tennis uh, has the re one of the reasons why tennis is a is a, a popular and clean sports because it was always always it has always valued its integrity and and. Uh, you know, protecting that integrity was one of the highest priorities of, of each and every leadership that was, uh, um, you know, part of part of this association. Um, and I think, especially in the Grand Slams, that uh, are and and always have been, you know, the most uh, um, valued and respected and renowned tennis tournament around the world throughout the history of the sport. So. Uh, you know, I know that there's also um, many betting companies that are on the websites. They're using, you know, uh, the names and uh, the brands and images of tournaments and 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 players and matches in order to to profit from that. So, and um, tennis hasn't been really getting the the piece of that cake, uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, it's it's hard to say. I, re I don't have yet. Uh, the stand and, and and clear opinion of you know about that. So I th I think it's, it's it's it is a subject of discussion. We'll see what happens. And then lastly, to bring this all home, we 
Uh, we're joined by Simon Cambers, who is here working for The Guardian as a freelance writer about tennis, who is focused pretty extensively on the sort of corruption sides of it, anti-doping and uh, integrity in terms of match fixing and stuff, so to get his more expert opinion, I think, on this. I mean, I've written about it before, but Simon has done more about it, I think, uh, big picture. I know he's done more on the TIU itself and being British and TIU being British. He's been involved in that, so to get his take on this whole weird world. So on this day where this BBC slash BuzzFeed story came out, we're delighted to be joined by uh, Simon Cambers, who we thought would be a good person to talk about this with Courtney and myself. Simon, I guess, what was your your, your impressions on this uh, story, this report that came out, and if it if it changes anything uh, in terms of how how the status of match-fixing, integrity, et cetera, concerns are in tennis. It's a difficult one because I, I first thought was, oh, God, what a day <laughs> in store. And it is, it's is—it's been a long one. But I, I think it's a difficult issue because most of the report that it's based on is from nine years, nine years ago. Yeah. It's a leaked report that some people in tennis knew about nine years ago. The only new thing in there is that there seems to be a Grand Slam singles winner talked about as being flagged up as a potential match of match-fixing. And... From that, you can't really extrapolate too much. They haven't named any names, which is yeah, the, the big issue. thing. It's frustrating. So, yeah. what do you think? What do you think about just go, go right to that? Them not naming names, because that's my, my feeling on it. Is it's not all that explosive if you don't name names. You can say, "Oh, match fixing is going on, and it's coming." And I guess this Grand Slam singles champion vague thing is maybe trying to make it even a higher level. But I think honestly, if you don't name names, if you don't call out people and call out matches, it's the ball doesn't it's, move forward. The ball doesn't exactly. Those the ball doesn't of us move in the sport forward. know yeah. that this happens. We you can, this happens. You, can, you can obviously you could, you could maybe mention the names, but you are running the legal risk, especially in Britain. Um, you know, if you're talking about, there is a defamation risk if you start naming a few names who crop up all the time. Even if you're saying, you know, these are the players that have been reported more yeah. than five times in the last nine years, that's just a fact. Yeah, because it seems yeah, not it's, saying it's, that it's, you're yeah. linking it to and saying you're it's not it, making an allegation. I don't think data is defamation. You know, if you if, if they if they if they, if they publish <laughs> if they publish all of the data and said here's all the numbers, the numbers point most to these people. They have not, however, been formally implicated in anything. Draw your own conclusions. That's well, how it's I would do it. not like the doping yeah. stats, right? It's like these p- players have been tested. He's, this one has been tested more so than that player. It doesn't mean that they're under investigation necessarily. It's true. It would have been. It would have been better if they named names. You can see it already on the social media. Everyone's guessing the names, yeah. trying to remember That's who was doing what. Yeah. yeah, and it causes more problems. But it's um, it's it's a it's the thing about it for me is it's just and it seems to me like a. It's an investigation that has been done, that should have been done seven or eight years ago. It's maybe a bad thing for the rest of us. We should have done this, you know, a while ago. But it's just putting it into the public domain a little bit more than it was. I think a lot of people in tennis knew about most of this stuff and some of the names involved. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a good timing on their part. They've done a good job with the PR right behind it. (laughs) But I don't think it's that, that big a deal. Do do you think, you, you mentioned something about tennis integrity, you tweeted uh, something about tennis integrity unit. Probably you expect them to get a funding increase after all this. Yeah. Do you think right? I mean, what's your general impression of them as, as in terms of how they come off in this? As, I was. I mean, there was a press conference today. We might include some audio of that in here, but I wasn't super impressed by them. And they never talk about anything, and so it's no. it's, it's hard to feel like they are the right, the, uh, you know, a, a sure hand guiding this ship away from potential icebergs it's when a, they seem to be uh, asleep at the wheel. Yeah, they're a weird. Bunch. <laughs> yeah. If you, I mean, they're, they're ex-policemen. They've obviously been very successful in their jobs, and they were brought in to do this. Um, but there are five, I think now six. They've just hired another one. There are six of them. 
Um, they sit in a small office in London and they re- react to reports and they don't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do, obviously. But I don't think they come out of it very well because no. they are so uh, opaque. You know, there's never a decent answer from them. The one time Nigel Wilson got to answer a question, right. he sort of backed off quickly. Oh, no, it wouldn't be professional of me. Well, why not? Just, just answer a, it. Which I think is such a crap answer. Yeah. I mean, him saying, and he said to me later on, again, I got him a little bit briefly alone. And... Like, yeah. how is it unprofessional for you to comment on what your work is? It yeah. seems like... If, if you want to say we don't comment on ongoing right. if investigations... this is a policy, then that's fine. But there's nothing... Not to say it's unprofessional. It's just the wrong word choice. I've sort of... I've brought this up with the ATP a few times. They they know that it's an issue, that the, the transparency or lack of transparency is causing them problems because, for all we know, something good might be going on behind the scenes. But we don't know anything because they won't tell us. So the automatic assumption is that nothing's going on and these people are just sitting there cracking down on, you know, petty petty uh, cases that have absolutely nothing to do with anything yeah. um, you know I know that they've been involved in you know, wasting their time looking at small fry instead of right. catching the, the big guns I mean but that's another question as well which is you know is this happening you know I talked to, to some somebody today who said this isn't happening in matches that matter this is happening in matches that don't and this is happening that matches outside of the purview this you don't win grand slams because you fi- you fixed a match like that's not going to be you know what happens but I don't know. I mean, it it seems to ring true to me. And on that point, that's why I think in terms of big picture, for the level of tennis we cover, doping is a much bigger concern than match fixing. Because a doper who is performance-enhanced illicitly can win a Grand Slam. It's going to help you win more money. Can win things. The match fixing, I understand where it cuts to the integrity of the concept of sport and trying Mm -hmm. to win and everything. But it's happening at the most out-of-the-way places. If it was a Grand Slam champion, I'm sure it happened to be one time at like the first round of a 250 or at a you know a challenger when they were coming up or at some point. I don't think that this has as big an impact. And I, and I also don't think, honestly, like if it comes out that some Grand Slam champion of recent years, and there aren't very many if we're assuming it's a man, if they did do something early in their career, like 2007, 2008, does it really change how we think about them now? I'm not honestly even sure. It about depends that. what it is. Even if they threw a match, then you might think, you know, you would probably think badly, and then they would get a lot of stick for it. But I think one of the things that came out of the BuzzFeed, the bigger, longer report, was they're talking about losing somebody losing the first set a lot. Yeah. I think a lot of players. I know you don't want to go too much into the general picture of this, but I know that I think a lot of players who may be on the fringes of the tour um, think that losing a set, losing a game, dropping a serve here and there. And a spot fixing yeah. spot is fixing. no big spot deal. Fixing. It's no big deal because it's not affecting the outcome. And not only that, especially right. if when the cases that people have talked about spot fixing, where one player agrees to drop the first set, the other yeah. one drops the second, and they might play an honest third set. Yeah. That's or let's just agree to get it to three all in the first set, and then we'll play from there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a bit. It's, it's a bit ridiculous. It's a bit <laughs> unnecessary. It's. It's. It's a. It's just uh, it's a v- around the fringes of the game. There's no money at Challenger Tour, no money futures. You can understand why people oh, who yeah. are approached are very tempted, and I'm sure it goes on. No question. I remember when it's when this first kicked off, 2007, with Davidenko's case. Um, here, it was when TIU was being set up. I asked Mahesh Bhupati, you know, whether he'd ever been approached, and his answer was, "Nah, not really." I was like, "Not really." <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, "Well, yeah, you know, just Davis Cup on the phone. Do you want to lose a match? Well, no, thanks. Okay, right, bye." <laughs> so people were a little bit blasé about it yeah. at that time, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, no, I mean. Pretty much every player will tell you. Yeah. It, 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 another kind of mood. If you, especially lower in players, like, yeah, I've heard things. You know, yeah. message me on Facebook, whatever, and that stuff does happen. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm not sure that tennis integrity is doing much to. 
stop. It's just, yeah. it's very yeah. hard to stop. And the thing about That's tennis, thing, yeah. tennis match fixing, it only takes one person. Yeah, right. it doesn't even need doesn't to. Doesn't need to. Yeah, so I mean, you're obviously more familiar being British, just basically probably more familiar <laughs> with, with, with kind of gambling as saying? a concept. Yeah, you know, I, to me, it's it's I'm still trying to get the ropes and all that sort of stuff. But I'm kind of curious as is to you know we're talking a lot, obviously a lot about match fixing in tennis, and it comes up a lot as being a the problem. Is it more so a problem in, in tennis than like what other sports are common? Soccer, right, it's affected football. It? It's a f- soccer in, in Britain yeah. has been affected quite a lot. Okay. Uh, cricket badly, okay. badly affected. But that was back in the late nineties. Is it the same sort of thing though? Where a lot of spot match? fixing, yeah, okay. in play. Okay. It's things like uh, a guy doesn't. It gets between twenty and thirty runs, and then he gets out. That kind of thing. One sort of philosophical question that we can end on this. To thank you for your time here. I'm glad we were able to approach you and get you to agree to do this, uh, as they say in these terms. Uh, about the uh, ATP's association and ITF's or whatever association with gambling companies and if that's inherently problematic. I mean, I remember in, when the ITF had their press release about Betway, I guess, as their yeah. new partner, they made a specific mention be like, ah, by the way, this isn't like affecting our integrity stuff at all. I know tennis players, for example, are... Um, not allowed to have gambling companies as their own personal mm-hmm. sponsors. The tour, however, is. The tour cashes those checks and says, oh, no, we're doing nothing wrong. Well, let's go play the Bet at Home Open again. Well, and, like yeah. Tournament, yeah, tournaments, tours, tournament governing stores. bodies. William yeah. Hill is on, it's been yeah. on the, uh, it's a betting house. It's been on the back walls of a lot of these things. I mean, you're, you're from a country where sports betting is illegal, which is not really the case in the U.S., so that makes it, us see it always as being inherently dicey. Yeah. But do you think uh, the tour cozying up and, and foreign partnerships uh, profiting from these betting companies directly now is problematic. Yeah. yeah. It's an obvious <laughs> conflict of interest. And I, I am somebody who you know, writes about betting, who as a Brit has grown up you know, having plenty of bets. Yeah, it's, of course it's problematic, especially when, as you said, when the players can't make money out of it, but the tours can. And the tours think the same thing about data, selling live rights. Oh, that's okay. But no one else can do anything like that. Otherwise, otherwise they're taking money away from us. But um, it, it reminds me, I think I was looking at some stuff the other day. There used to be a Ladbrokes tent at Wimbledon. Mm. In the 60s. You see a bet, as, on, as you see a bet on site, yeah. Yeah, and there was yeah. a TAB here, which is the local yeah. uh, betting firm. So it's part of the culture. I, I think Australia are quite good in the sense that they're adult about, you know, you should be able to gamble, and that's okay. We like that. But there's a massive conflict of interest. They are, and it runs right the way through tennis. It's sort of endemic. But to have the ITF with Betway, that's the worst of all, I think, because they're the rules makers. No. Right. And you know you've got a gambling. And they just don't need it. Like I'm, I no. can't imagine. It can't be that I can't much imagine money. exactly that ITF is getting that much money out of this to justify the iffiness. Yeah, well, the I mean, fact. What, sorry, I'm sorry. But one of the things that the, that you know tours or or you know the ITF will say is, uh, oh well, it'll help with us cracking down on betting. Do you buy that as a defense? Do you th- really think that like William Hill is going to be super adamant about flagging suspicious betting patterns at the Australian Open, for example? And they wouldn't and be if they along. weren't sponsors. It's the part where I think. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm skeptical. <laughs> right. I mean, I was talking to some officials who did tell me that today, and they sort of said, look, I know it sounds like dodgy, but you'll actually see a lot more information, and they are working together. But I suppose we have to take them at their word with that, but but I, I am still a little bit excited. <laughs> so, so last thing, can anything? Is there an easy fix to this? Can anything be done, or is this just not going to go away? There's no easy fix. I think if if you really wanted to get rid of most of match fixing, you would stop in play betting. Yeah, you would get the bookmakers to stop it. You'd you'd have to pay them off a lot of money. Um, but 90% of it would be gone because that all you'd be able to do is bet on the outcome of the match before it starts. But uh, they make too much money out of it, uh, both the tours and the, the betting companies themselves, to do it. That would be the only way I could see it. 
Thank you very much, Simon. This is great. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. And thank you guys for listening to our first Australian Open daily episode. Uh, hoping to do these daily-ish at the very least uh, during the during the tournament. Uh, crank them out for you guys because you guys have been amazing in your support. We have a few hours left, depending on how fast you listen to this. Uh, we have a few hours left in our Kickstarter, which will end right when play starts on day two. Uh, at 11 a.m. Melbourne time, 7 p.m. East Coast U.S., 4 p.m. East Coast, West Coast U.S., and, you know, midnight in London, various other <laughs> permutations. Uh, but you guys have been amazing. Just today we cracked $20,000. What? Which is insane. It's like, insane. You it's guys, crazy, like, yes. I was saying, and I mean this legitimately, if, if someone had told me, like, oh, the number, the amount of money you will raise will, like, start with a two, I'd be like, oh, we didn't hit 3000 <laughs> We didn't get there. 20? 20 was not... Yeah. I was never thinking 20. So this has been nuts. It's been uh, humbling. Uh, an honor. I mean, like, it's been really it's been really cool that you guys have enjoyed the show so much. And it puts a lot of... Uh, it puts on us to keep making the show as great as we can throughout this 2016 season of NCR. And we're hoping doing little shows like this along the way during this tournament. We know you said you wanted more during Slam. So here we are giving that to we you. We are giving you so much of us. This is a very kickstarted episode. Yeah. And uh, we will see you guys next time soon yeah all right bye-bye Bye. hey i've got it we can enter that search for the stars contest first prize is exactly twenty thousand dollars hey that's a nifty idea marcia great idea marcia good idea marcia am i invisible do i not have a voice i had that idea two days ago stop being so selfish jan